Hi, and thank you for joining us for the Compass Catholic Podcast. My name is Caitlin Kano. I'm joined by my co-host, Diana Rojas, as we meet every week to explore personal finance topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. On this podcast, we explore the spiritual, emotional, and economic aspects of money. Thanks for joining us. Hi everyone, this week's episode is from a Facebook Live event that Diana and I recorded on September 29th. If you have any financial questions you want us to answer, we encourage you to email us at podcast at compasscatholic.org and ask us those questions and we may use those on our next live event. Who knows, it may also be inspiration for an entire episode. We hope you enjoy. Here we are, we are live. Hi Diana. Hi Caitlin. How are you doing? I'm super excited for this tonight. How are you doing? I'm really excited. There's going to be some background noise. There's some work going on in my house, but we're just going to roll with it like we do with our podcast. You go with it. We're in, we're in real life. It'll be great. You can't really hear it anymore, so we're good. Okay. <laughs> so I'm really excited to actually be live today. Um, we have been doing our podcast for a few months now, and this is our first live event. Yeah, it's it. It feels a little bit different, but kind of the same. So I'm, I'm really excited because it is a different feel for us to be live and answering questions as they come in. And we have some questions that already came in. So it'll be exciting to uh, to have some people join us tonight. Yeah. So we're going to give it a minute or two and let people come into the room if, if they're going to be joining us. And even if you can't join us, that's totally fine. If you're watching this because you've watched a recording or you're hearing our podcast, we're going to post tomorrow on Podbean. Um, still submit your questions. We can get to them either at a future date or we can get to them. Uh, maybe it's going to be inspiration for an entire episode. Yeah. Yeah. So, we love your questions. So you can email us. Um, you can leave us a comment. Yeah, yeah. We'd love to hear your questions and answer them. So should we just jump into it? Yeah. I don't see why not. Yeah. All right. So these are questions we get a lot. These are questions that we get about faith and finances and, and uh, things that just come up and we thought now's the good time to do it. And this is the public forum. Yeah, so uh, we can just get started. Are you ready, Caitlin? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so one of the common questions that we get is, is there really a difference between good debt and bad debt? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a common question. It's one that actually is super Googled and searched all the time. So good debt is usually defined as a debt with a purpose. So, um, and that purpose is usually building wealth in some sort or increasing in income. Um, so this could be things like student loans, mortgages, those kind of things that you take on debt to like be able to earn more income or grow your wealth. Hmm. Um, the term bad debt usually refers to things like credit cards or things like consumer debt. There's really no asset to speak of and the debt is still there. Um, and I think here's my problem with the term good and bad debt. This is where I get a little bit concerned, is that when you say the term good debt, you're kind of like encouraging it. Like, it's a good thing. Take on good debt. It's okay to take on $200,000 in student loans because you're going to be able to earn more income. And I think every single person we've spoken to who has student debt loads of that magnitude would argue differently. Um, every single one we've spoken to has said, 
they wish they'd done it a different way. They wish they looked at more scholarships. They wish they hmm. went to a cheaper school. So I think we need to be careful about using the term good debt versus bad debt. I think the term is productive debt mm. versus non-productive debt. Also, you can get to the point where your productive debt is completely non-productive. Mm. I can't imagine having student loans of six figures and then being called to a ministry lifestyle where my income is 30000 a year. That what was good debt is now completely non-productive. So um, I think the another thing to think about is what does the Bible say about debt? And we don't know exactly if we should be taking on debt. Let's look to the Bible and see what it says. Romans 13, 8 says, oh, nothing, oh no one anything. Mm. Proverbs 22, 7 says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. That is strong language, right? Like, these words were chosen for a reason. And Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. Hmm. You cannot serve both God and mammon. So when you're reading these scriptures and we're reading these things about what the Bible says about debt, I think it's important to point out that scripture doesn't actually call out debt specifically as a sin. Um, a lot of people try to make it seem like it's a sin. It's never been called out directly as a sin, but it does seem like it's discouraging it, right? Like, yeah. I think that that language is pretty strong. They say slave, they say despise. It's pretty strong language. Um, so it's important to understand that when we take on debt, there's a couple of assumptions we're making and a couple of thoughts, that, thought processes we want to interrupt um, and make the best decision for us, whether this debt we're taking on is going to be productive and non-productive. Um, so first of all, um, in the Old Testament, um, slavery, or sorry, uh, debt was likened to slavery and it was considered a curse. Okay. And then it also presumes upon tomorrow. We're never promised tomorrow, right? Like we're not, we're, we have today and debt assumes there's going to be mm. a tomorrow to pay it off. Um, and I think the most important thing we need to consider is that when we take on debt, we're denying God our future opportunities. Mm. So the curse of debt is really happens when a person is struck with a debt load to the point where if God wanted to call them for something, they can't answer with a yes because mm. their present dollars and their future time is already spoken for, right? So debt can be really limiting. And if you think about We've had um, priests on, we've had other religious on who had tremendous debt loads and they couldn't pursue, pursue their, um, their uh, calling and their decisions to discern their religious life because they had to get that debt paid off yeah. before they could properly pursue. Um, or maybe there's a family out there that wants to be generous in some way. There's something calling to their heart, but they can't because their future dollars are spoken for by their past decisions. So those are just things to think about. It's not called out as a sin specifically, but I think the language was chosen strongly on purpose. So um, the Bible also doesn't talk about when it is permissible to take on um, debt and to when, when you can owe someone money. So based on our experience teaching this material and working with Catholics around the world, um, we've kind of distilled it down to three criteria that we want people to consider before they take on new debt. And the first one is uh, the item purchased should be an asset with the potential to appreciate to produce income. 
The second one is the value of the item should not exceed the amount owed on it. Hmm. And the, uh, or sorry, I just misspoke there. The value of the item must exceed the amount owed on it. Um, and the debt should not be so high that the repayment puts undue strain on the budget. Hmm. So if you have met those three criteria, and this is a debt that you're considering taking on, it's important to also remember to borrow as little as possible and to pay it off as quickly as possible and free up those opportunities for the Lord to work in our lives. Yeah, those are really great answers. And one of the things that I kept thinking about when you were speaking, Caitlin, was the idea of even something that might be considered productive or good debt, right? Like a student loan, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think we also have to remember to be prudent. And like you were saying, do I need to go to this school that cost this many thousands of dollars or is there a more prudent option I can take where I still have a little bit of debt because I need to pay for school, but maybe not as big of a debt. Um, that just seems to be a theme that we talked a lot about already. And also just like in my life, my cousin's going to college and just, I know a lot of young adults who are thinking about taking on debt and just a matter of like being prudent and how much we need to take. Mm -hmm. And those scriptures, man, They're I strong. love them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I like the one, um, the rule, the rich rule over the poor, the borrow is slave of the lender. And, I, and makes me just think like really anyone that you owe any money to, I, according to the scripture, like you're almost a slave to them. You still owe them something until you're paid off, whether it's a large sum or a small sum. So mm -hmm. yeah, I love when we can tie it back to uh, scripture. It's always a good oh, reminder. Always. Tie everything back to scripture. I know. We love doing that. So it's, it's fun <laughs> for us. <laughs> So another another often or question that I hear often is like more of a conflicting message. It's more of um, how can I be generous? Um, how generous should I be? And you know the whole idea of should Catholics tithe, or is there a different way that um, we can be giving or a different guide to follow as far as tithing and being generous with our with our money as Catholics? I love this question, and we get this a lot. Yeah, we get this a lot. So for those who aren't familiar with the term tithing. Essentially, it's an, an ancient practice where um, you give your first 10% of your income to the church. So, um, or, you know, give it back to God. And um, it's something that's encouraged among our, our Protestant brethren. And, and it's a good practice. It's a good one, right? And considering most Catholics' generosity hovers, I think it's between like 1% and 3%. 10% is a good goal, right? But when we limit ourselves to 10%, we're letting the good be the enemy of the great. Mm. So what I want you to think about here, and I, I know there's a lot of well-intending Catholics that will say 10%, 10%. Um, and I think this is where we as Catholics need to do a better job of making sure we have education around what does it mean to be generous? What's a good um, systematic way to be generous? Um, and, and kind of focus on that and lean into that message a lot. Um, about spending plans and being generous with our budget and everything else, uh, just because I think as a church, the church as a whole benefit if, if we get this um, stuff locked on together and get this messaging out. So um, like I said, the it's very well-meaning and, and it's good. Tithing is good, right? 10% is a good thing. But the guidance from the United States Council of Catholic Bishops says we're to give to our capacity. Um, it also says we're called to uh, support our church and that we're called to be stewards of our time, talent, and our treasure. Um, and there are some other really good benefits with tithing, right? Like, so first of all, it's really easy to calculate. 10% easy, you move the decimal, right? Like it's easy math. 
Um, and it just makes it like, oh, okay, I earn $100, 10, 10 bucks, you know, it's, it's easy math. And the second thing is it's systematic. It's a fixed system. You make the decision once and you always know it's 10%, right? And we humans love our habits. We just we love that habit loop. We love to just, um, you know, make a decision once and kind of like crockpot things, like set it and forget it. Um, and we should not be crockpotting our generosity, right? So the problem with tithing is that um, we see is that you start treating generosity as a bill to be paid. Mm. And it's not, it's something we get to do. So in um, the second book of Corinthians, chapter nine, verses five through eight, we read, so I thought it necessary to encourage the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for your promised gift so that in this way, it might be ready as a bountiful gift, as a bountiful gift and not an exaction. Cons Consider this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Mm. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each, much, each must do as already determined without sadness and compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Moreover, God is able to make every grace abundant to you, so that in all things, always having all you need, you may have an abundance for every good work. So I went and looked up the word exaction just to make sure I'm defining it correctly and my interpretation was correct. And it's defined as the action of demanding and obtaining something from someone, um, especially a payment or service. Mm -hmm. So we can't treat generosity like a bill to be paid. It's something we get to do. And the Lord can't be outdone in generosity. When we're generous, we let this generosity loop happen. We just get to participate in the beauty of the cycle of it. Um, and when we start getting stingy, we stop that. Like we're, we kind of become our own worst enemies. So um, when we are thinking about tithing, um, I just want you to think about 10% being the beginning, mm. not the end. That is not our limit. Um, and our approach to giving is based on several Bible passages, as well as stewardship and disciples response and the U.S. Bishop's pastoral letter on stewardship. So our approach to giving is that giving should be periodic. Um, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, every Sunday, each of you must put aside some money in proportion to what you have earned and save it up so there'll be no need to collect money when I come. So we want to make it periodic, right? Like we want to build... It's a good thing to build the habit of the muscle, but not crockpot it, right? So make it periodic. We also want to make it personal. Um, we honor God when we participate in the mass, and we honor God with our funds that we bring to be generous with, right? So make it personal and um, just really kind of be thankful for the moment of being able to be generous. Um, giving should be out of a private deposit. So... Um, this is what we mean here is if you experience difficulty in monitoring the money you decided to give, consider opening a separate account or like automating a separate account. So that way um, it's like you intentionally are, are being generous with that money. Again, you're not crockpotting it, but you're intentionally setting it aside to reduce the temptation to touch it for something else. Um, it should be a priority. We want to honor the Lord with our wealth and our first fruits of all our produce, which that comes from Proverbs chapter three, verse nine. Um, it should be premeditated and we want to give prayerfully 
and we should be giving without pride because in Matthew chapter six, verses one through four, it says, but take care not to perform righteous deeds in order that people may see them. Otherwise you'll have no recompense from your heavenly father. And it goes on from there. So we wanna make sure we're doing it without pride. Um, but yeah, it's still, it's, it's, we provide a systematic way to do it while still allowing room for constant thought, constant prayer, constant evaluation as to what the Lord's calling us to be generous with. I like that idea of, of not crockpotting. And I like that you use that, that verbiage, it's so funny, but um, I think that's, something that I've done in the past, like I just will do like the automatic withdrawal and I don't even think about it. And yeah, it's great that I'm still giving. Right. But I think, um, I think the Lord likes to see our intention and likes to see our, our motive behind it. So I think the idea of, um, opening up that account and just like intentionally, I'm going to put this money in this account so I can give it at church on Sunday. That sounds like a, a I don't know, a better way to do it, I guess. Not that there's a wrong way to do it, but a better there's way no to do wrong it. Way. Yeah. But yeah, maybe a little bit more intentional and maybe, yeah, Take into account the other teachings we've been so blessed with as Catholics, which includes from USCCB and then um, the, the letter on stewardship of disciples' response. Yeah. I know that tithing is kind of sometimes a touchy subject, so hopefully hopefully you learned something from that and weren't too offended. But, yeah, we're just trying to, you know, share our, our knowledge in that. And I know it's, it was a struggle for me learning about tithing and starting to tithe was not always easy for me in the beginning. So we, we understand the struggle in that. Um, I love your answers, Caitlin. You're so awesome. Thank you for oh. sharing your knowledge with us. Cool. So <laughs> we have a few more questions. <laughs> so as uh, you know, I'm a young adult and I have a lot of friends either changing jobs or getting new jobs. And so another common question that, you know, I know I've been asked and I, I'm sure you've been asked as well is along the lines of, I just started with a new job and I'm setting up my 401k. I went through my emergency fund during COVID and still want to be generous to my parish. How do I balance these? Yeah, and that's a question we're hearing a lot just because a lot of people went through some period of unemployment, reduced employment, they had to go into their emergency fund. It happens and that's why the emergency fund is there. So first of all, I wanna say kudos for having an emergency fund because otherwise that would have been debt. And since this person did not mention debt, I'm assuming there's no debt that we're dealing with here. Um, so I'm just going to assume we've gone through our emergency fund and we'll start from there. So um, if you have gone through your emergency fund and you want to work on setting up your 401k and you want to be generous, what I want people to think about here is um, that uh, when we are called to be generous, we're called to be generous with our time, talent, and treasure, and we're called to be generous to our capacity. And your capacity to be generous with your funds may be presently reduced. Mm. And that's okay. It's okay. That's where you're at. It's all good. Um, doesn't mean it's gone away completely, but maybe you should lean into time and talent a little bit more in this period of time. Again, constantly reassessing as your income changes, you know, you, you can increase your financial capacity too. But the first thing I want this person to think about is building up that emergency fund at least to $1,000. Bad things happen to good people. And as we saw during COVID, bad things can happen to good people. And that's why we encourage an emergency fund. So get that in there, get that money in there. It's ready to go. You have comfort, you feel better about things when you know that money set aside. And so when you have that thousand dollars in there, um, after that, you can start shifting focus a little bit. Um, and there's the goal is going to be a little bit, uh, you're going to be, a, there's a few different things to think about at one time. And you can work on a few different goals at once. That's okay. Like that's the thing. So um, first of all, we want to build up that emergency fund to three months income. So automate some money to go into um, that emergency fund that's already $1,000.
build that up to at least three months income. Um, and then after that, you can build it up further, but just let that three months income be your goal. Um, the next thing you can do is look at your spending plan and assess whether you can get up to your employer match with your 401k. Cause essentially it's free money um, when your employer matches and you don't want to leave that on the table. Um, you also don't want to uh, not be able to take advantage of the time value of money, right? So uh, once you have that $1,000, then you can start working, building up your emergency fund to three months expenses. And you can see if you can get up to your employer match with your 401k. And the last thing I want this person to do is to um, constantly, like I said, reassess your capacity to give. It is good for us. We benefit in so many ways. When we're generous, we had decreased blood pressure. We think clearly, like I can go on all day and Diana's heard my list, but I love generosity. It's so good for us. And um, just constantly reassess as your income increases and you know you, your financial situation stabilizes, constantly reassess your capacity. Like that. And so I'm, I don't think uh, a little off topic, maybe, but I'm going to flip that on you, Caitlin. So let's say that um, I went through my emergency fund and I am giving to my 401k above my employer's match. Is this a good opportunity for me to sit back and maybe reduce my 401k to get my emergency fund a little bit higher if it's depleted? Um, or should I kind of not touch my 401k? Is that more of a personal decision? So everything's a personal decision, <laughs> everything. And I'll never tell people what to do. I'll tell you what to consider. Um, and while your emergency fund is depleted, I, I know that there's some people that um, they just want to take advantage of the 401k as much as possible. And we want to ignore the fact, like I said, that good, bad things happen to good people. We can't do that. We really have to make sure we have these things um, lined up and, you know, in case the emergency happens. So um, I would say if you are contributing above and beyond and you don't have an emergency fund, just relook at your spending plan and see if you should tweak things, get some more money in the emergency fund, and then reassess once that emergency fund is funded. But um, yeah, definitely if you can, take advantage of that match. It's free money. Yeah. So nothing wrong with that. And I guess the other thing to think about as well, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about my situation as well. Like, you can always readjust your thing, your your spending or your savings account. So it's not like it's permanent, fixed. You can always go back and, you know, up your four hundred one k or lower a little bit. So that's really good things to think about. I'm actually thinking about my own situation. So yeah, food for thought. Thank you, Caitlin. You're welcome. Oh my goodness. So another question that uh, may or may not hit home with me or people like me who are single, but um. A question that I get, a couple of my friends have actually asked me this question. So um, maybe they submitted this, but I'm single and thinking about buying my first home. What things do I need to keep in mind when looking for a home and shopping for a mortgage? I love this topic. So I'm excited to hear all of your answers. I, I love this topic too. And I'm trying to hide all the moving boxes behind me because <laughs> we just moved ourselves and, and purchased our home. Um, so this, all this stuff is top of mind because we just went through it. Um, and if you can see all the crazy boxes behind me, I'll get to them eventually. They've been there for a few weeks. But um, okay, so if you are considering buying a house, um, and this is especially important if you're single because when there is a married couple situation, there's, there's two incomes. So if one goes away, you can kind of like scale back expenses and you know go to the other income and possibly live off that. Um, but when you are a single person, you really have to be very aware that you need to be like your own insurance, right? Like you need to make sure your plan is in place so you have a solid footing and a solid foundation. So um, the first thing I recommend is to consider your income 
and decide before you even start the house hunting process how much house you can afford. Mm. Set those boundaries now because when you're dealing with such large numbers, 10,000 here, 20,000 there, like it just seems like I'll take care of it in 30 years. Like no big deal, right? Those are real dollars. It's not make believe money. Like those are dollars. So set your budget before you even go in and see your first pre kitchen because that granite's going to make you like question everything you know, <laughs> right? So set that before you even start the process. Um, the next thing is make a list of your needs versus wants. And this is when you have like a come to Jesus moment as to like what are my needs and what are my wants, right? It's very easy to let the really nice to have stuff mm. reap into the needs list. So make your list of needs versus wants. And you know, you're in the Miami area. That's it's expensive real estate there. And, very. and people can mark things up a lot. Yeah. Um, so you really need to distill down what are my needs, what are my wants? And that's after you decide how much you are willing to pay um, and you are able to pay. And the next step is um, take the shopping around process for a mortgage as seriously as you take the house shopping process. Hmm. Because you are going to be dealing with this company for possibly the next 30 years. So shop around for a mortgage. Understand that you're the customer and that this is as big as of a decision as purchasing the house, mm. right? So be particular, get lots of different, um, you know, uh, estimates and make a wise decision for you. Um, and something else to think about is when you pull your credit to purchase a home, your credit's going to take a, a little bit of a hit because it's like a hard inquiry on your credit. They know that you're about to take on potentially a large debt once you get a mortgage inquiry. So your credit may take a hit of like three to five points. It'll go away in a couple months. It's really not that dramatic. But once you do that once, the mortgage company or the, the credit companies know that you're shopping around for a mortgage and mm -hmm. your credit's not going to take any more dings. So once you do that one, that first initial credit inquiry, get as many bids as you can, get as many you know, oh. as, as you can, um, because it's not going to hurt your credit and you're only just going to gather more information. So um, take the shopping for the mortgage company as seriously as you do the shopping for the house. Um, the next step is prepare for the closing cost. These can be a shocker because they can run between three and 5% of the purchase price of the house. Um, and some can even run more. You also have your down payment in there. So if you have, I'm just going to do this math top of mind and I hope I get it right. If you, um, look at a house that's like $150,000 and you put down 20% and then you have your closing costs. You may have to bring, I want to say it's like $36,000 to the table the day you close. So prepare for those things. Um, and just understand that there are attorney's fees, there's title companies, there's S like, there's a lot of different things that add up. So, um, three to 5% of your purchase price, you need to be prepared to bring to closing plus your, your um, down payment. And then the final thing is consider the true cost of home ownership. So we recommend that people put away about 1% of the purchase price every year for home maintenance, and you're not gonna use it every year. And especially when a home is new, you're gonna be like, oh, she's crazy, one quick one, like oh, we don't need to do this. When you hit that point where you need a new roof or an air conditioning, like you're in Vegas, or you're in Miami, I'm in Vegas. AC is a thing. Like you, 
that's a thing. So have that set aside. So when that hits, you're good to go. So about 1% of the purchase price every year, set that aside for the occasional, you know, leak in the roof or like I said, AC, because that's all we think about here in Vegas is AC. But um, yeah, set that aside and that way it's not going to be debt that accumulates. Yeah, that's really good advice. So I hope that that was helpful for anyone that's looking to buy a house. And yeah, my only advice for house buying is to be patient. It's a process. Don't rush into it because like you said, you're dealing with that company for the next however many 30 years that you're you're bound to them. So it is a process. Um, I don't see any questions coming in on my end. Caitlin, did you catch any questions coming in? No, I don't see any questions. So I'm going to take that as everyone knows exactly what to do. But no, that's <laughs> <laughs> no that's but we, um, if you have a question, you're watching this as a recording, please put it in the comments or, you know, email us info at Compass Catholic. Uh, let us know what your questions are. We will make a podcast episode about it. Or maybe you had a goal that you accomplished. If you are someone who paid off tremendous debt or you accomplish some amazing financial goal, let us know. Let your story be a testament to how you let God work in your financial life. Yeah, we'd um, love to share it with everyone else. For sure. Yeah. So I think we are good today. That's uh we, we're at about almost a half hour and we'll let people go on their their way. But I appreciate you, Diana. Yes, I appreciate you too. This was so much fun. I hope we can do it again soon. All right. And we'll talk to everyone soon. All right. Bye guys. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, would you please subscribe and share it with a friend? This helps us to get the message out to as many people as possible. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or ideas for future episode topics, you can email us at podcast at compasscatholic.org or you can give us a call at 407-878-7637. We are so happy to be on this journey with you. See you next week.